If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and open them up to 2 Kings chapter 4. As we pick up today again in our Unravel series, going through the entire Bible, 2 Kings chapter 4. In the mid-1800s, a man named Horatio Spafford ran a prominent law firm in Chicago, and he was also a very successful real estate investor. But he lost all of his holdings in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Everything he had invested in was all gone in one night. And right around that same time, their son died of scarlet fever. And thinking that a vacation would do his family good, he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them right after he finished up some pressing business at home. But on the voyage to England, out in the middle of the ocean, that ship sank, leaving more than 200 people dead, including all four of his daughters. His wife was rescued, along with some others, and when they arrived in England, actually I believe it was Wales they ended up in, she telegrammed her husband back in Chicago these two words, saved alone. And of course he heard, he had heard the news of the disaster and he took the very next ship that was available to go to England. In fact, they had planned to meet up with D.L. Moody there at that time and help him with one of his crusades. And of course, none of that worked out the way they had planned. But on his way across the ocean, he had asked the captain to come and alert him when they came near to the spot where his four daughters had drowned. The captain came and said, we're getting close. It's not far. And Horatio Spafford walked out onto the deck of that ship and he stood there gazing out across the dark waters of the ocean and he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. As little children, I think we all probably loved those stories that started with once upon a time and ended with, and they lived happily ever after. But in all of those stories, before they got to the happily ever after part, there were always problems that had to be overcome, battles that had to be fought, dragons that had to be slain. As followers of Christ, we can know for sure that one day, and I don't mean to trivialize what I'm about to say, I don't mean to trivialize eternity, but we can know for sure that one day we will live happily ever after when we are with him in his presence forever. But before we get to the happily ever after part, there are going to be problems that have to be overcome. There are going to be battles that have to be fought. There are going to be dragons that have to be slain. Jesus said, he promised, that in this life, it would all be cushy and easy 
Oh, no, wait, he didn't say that at all. He actually promised that in this life, we would have trouble and hardship and sorrow and pain and loss. So as we face all of that stuff right here, right now, in our everyday lives, what are you counting on? What are you looking to? What are you leaning on and depending on that will allow you to see past the problems and difficulties and trials of this life and will allow you to say, whatever may come, it is well with my soul. I don't mean there won't be tears. I don't mean there won't be grief and heartache. There will. But as followers of Christ, we do not have to be caught up in that. We do not have to be paralyzed by that because we know what's coming. We know what he has prepared for us beyond this life. Well, the last time we were here in 2 Kings chapter 3, we were looking at the life of Elisha the prophet. Elisha had been called to take the place of Elijah, ministering in the land where really these were God's people, but they had turned their hearts from God. They were worshiping idols. They were far from him. And Elisha was now called to sort of, well, literally and figuratively take up the mantle of Elijah. And so we pick up now in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. And it says this, one day Elisha went to Shun, and by the way, no sermon slides today. I just, I had too many verses and I know I'm going to have to skip around based on time. I don't like to make those folks jump through that many hoops back there. So if you need a Bible, we have some in the foyer one day Elisha went to Shuman, Shunem, where there was a great woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. Now, just like his mentor Elijah had done, we saw the, the last phase of Elijah's life, he traveled on a circuit to a number of cities. And Elisha is doing the same thing. He traveled on this regular circuit in order to bring God's word to the people. And one of those places he would pass through often was a town called Shunem. And we're introduced to a woman who lived there. And although she is unnamed in the Bible, there are several things that we're told about her. First of all, the Bible calls her a great woman. Now, this word great is most often used in the Bible when it describes a person as being a notable person, a prominent person, more specifically a wealthy person, a person of means. Job was called the greatest of all the men in the East in Job uh, 1.3, I think it is, and, and that verse, that statement comes right after it had just described all that Job possessed and his great wealth. The term great is also used to describe Boaz in the book of Ruth, who was also a very wealthy, influential man. But listen, having wealth doesn't make you great, despite what the world may tell us. You know the old bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. What nonsense. Do people actually believe that? That they would pay five bucks for a bumper sticker to declare that to everybody behind them? It always amazed me. I always wanted to drive up next to that and roll my window down and say, no, they don't. Having wealth is not the thing that makes you great. The Bible talks about those 
who are poor in this world, but rich in faith. And can I just say to you, there's nothing wrong with having money as long as money doesn't have you. That's the distinguishing factor there. God has used many wealthy men and women around the world to further his cause. I can think of a list of them that our family has known throughout the years in Australia and South Africa and here in America. That when a moment arises where the church is in need or a brother or sister are in need, someone can step up and write a $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 check to move God's work forward. This is what God does. But just having that doesn't make you great. There's also a spiritual element to this. By the way, I would rather have it said of me on my tombstone that I was rich in faith rather than I was rich. The spiritual element of this term great comes out numerous, uh, numerous times in the Bible as well because what made Job great in God's eyes, what made Boaz great in God's eyes, And the reason they're spoken of so highly in the Bible was not because of their wealth, but it was because of their love for God, their commitment and their faithfulness to him. And the same is true of this Shunammite woman. So she was not only called a great woman, secondly, she was a godly woman. She had spiritual discernment because we see in verse 9, when she met the prophet Elisha, she said, I perceive that he is a holy man of God. Now, we don't know much about her husband other than a few hints we get in the upcoming verses, but it seems that, and I I don't want to state this for sure, but just putting the pieces together, it seems that this woman was the spiritual leader of her home, that her husband was lagging far behind. I'm thankful to see in this church the men coming together for different things and longing to take their stand to be the leaders that God has ordained them to be in their home, in their workplace, in their community, in the church. Don't listen to any of that hogwash that uh, the modern society will tell you, that men need to shut their mouth and take a back seat and be quiet. That's exactly what got the world into the sin problem we're in. The Bible says Adam was with Eve when she reached for the fruit, and the word with means right beside And he kept his mouth shut rather than stepping up and saying, whoa, honey, we're not doing that. Not in this family. (laughs) We need some more of that today. This woman was a godly woman. She had godly discernment. And I can't linger here, but boy, I just have to say, believers in this world today could use a healthy dose of godly discernment. Boy, could we use some of that. I'm amazed amazed constantly at the believers that I run into out there and talk to along the way who are so um, blinded by false doctrine, false teaching, and they're latching onto it, and they're following it by the tens of thousands. We need to pray constantly for godly discernment so that we'll be able to see with the eyes of God and know truth from lies, be able to recognize false prophets from true prophets, and so on. Well, that's for another day. She was a great woman. She was a godly woman, and I kid you not, I did not try to make all these start with the same letter. They just fell out this way. Like twice a year this happens, 
And I always say to you, I never try to force God's word into my outline and start everything with the same letter. And this happened, I don't know, earlier this year, and some dude came up to me afterwards and go, you know, all the points started with P today, right? I go, yes, thank you, thank you. I didn't mean to. So these all start with G. She was a great woman. She was a godly woman. She was a generous woman. We find a woman here who wanted to use what she had to be a blessing to others. Her heart went out to Elisha when she saw him, this man of God who was hated and hunted by the powers in the land, who was despised, who was mocked. Even in the last chapter, we saw some young people coming out and mocking him, making fun of him. And she saw him constantly on the go, not eating properly, not resting properly. The Bible says she constrained him to stop and eat something. It means she urged him, almost grabbing hold of him. I'm pretty sure she was Italian. I don't know, because I can just see her going, hey, you're so skinny, eh? You come, I feed you. (laughs) My apologies to all my Italian friends. She wanted to pile the food on the plate. You know, you ever been at your mom's house? for Thanksgiving, and you've had your third course, and she goes, hey, what's the matter with you? You're not eating? Come on, here's some more. You go, mom, I'm going to die, literally. No, come on, you can have some more. This was her. And so she pulled Elisha aside, and she said to him, come, come to my house and eat. And so from that point on, whenever Elisha passed through that town, I imagine he got, uh, you know, a quarter mile out, and he was going, mmm, cornbread, mmm, wow, pinto beans, I can... I can just smell it. That Shunammite woman's cooking up a meal for me. And it says every time he came through, he would go and stop at their house, and he would eat, and they would fellowship, and, and, and he was getting to know them and their family. But after a while, just providing meals for this man of God wasn't enough for this woman anymore. She, she wanted to use even more of what God had blessed her with to bless the work of God. Verse 10, she said, to her husband, let us make a small upper room on the wall, or it's literally on the roof of the house, the, f- the flat roof of the house that they would have back then. Let's build a, a small room there and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And that's exactly what they did. Her and her husband got together on this. They agreed, and they said, we're going to use our own money. We're going to build a little place for this man so that every time he comes through, He can pull aside off that dusty road. He can come in and refresh himself, and he can rest and take some time even uh, to, to study, to read whatever he needs to do. Verse 11, one day Elisha came there, and he went into the upper room and lay down there. See, it's okay for for us to take rest once in a while. I am the last person who should be saying that, but I've learned it the hard way. I don't think it's noble to burn ourselves out for God. I heard that a lot as a kid. I'd rather burn out than rust out. I get it. I understand what's being insinuated there, but uh, it's not so healthy for you, for your family, for the church, or for the kingdom of God for you to run yourself into the ground. So there's a balance there. God rested. And Elisha said to, now I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. I've heard it every which way. We're here in the south, so I'm going to say Gehazi. He said to his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, verse 13. And he said to him, now he's speaking to his servant to tell her, say now to her, look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king 
or to the commander of the army. Now, we've seen in previous chapters already, in fact, in, the, in chapter 3, Elisha had contact, direct contact with the king, with military leaders, and he was a man, even though he was despised by most of them, uh, he had shown the power of God on display, and so he had some connections. They still had respect for him. And he's saying to her, do you want me to go straight to the top and ask a favor for you? Anything you want. And she answered the strange phrase to us. She said, I dwell among my own people. Now you'd think that anybody, when given the chance for someone who knows the people at the top, whether we're talking about your country, your work, your community, for them to go on your behalf and request whatever you want, you'd think you would jump at the chance. I mean, if he had asked me that, I would have pulled the list out that I had already made, you know, from my back pocket and said, well, here, let's do these in order of importance. Can you ask for all of this for me? This woman says, I dwell among my own people. That doesn't mean anything to us, but what she's actually saying is, I'm perfectly content right here where I am with what I have. I don't need anything. She's saying, I didn't give to you so that you would give back to me. We so often do that in our lives. We give or we serve or we love with the secret hope of being recognized or patted on the back. It's something we all have to fight. This was not her intent at all. So she says to Elisha, I I don't need anything. I'm content. And again, I, I can't linger here, but boy, discernment is something that we need today. And how about contentment as well? Did you know that the, the goal of every advertisement, whether it's television, radio, magazine, newspaper, billboard, the goal of all advertising is to make you discontent. You remember that next time. You look at that ad and go, boy, they're right. That stuff I have at home, that's, that's kind of old and worn out. It's like six months old already. I need, to, I need to get a newer one. I need to get a better one. Again, nothing wrong with that, but we've got to be careful. Because it can put us in a place of constantly being discontent with what God has given us. Apostle Paul had a lot to say about that. And he could say even sitting in prison for doing what was right. He could say, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I've learned to be content. And I love the fact that he said, I've learned to be content. It takes some effort. It takes some self-discipline, some saying no to your desires, learning to be content. I think I've told you this before once, but uh, I want to be careful how I say this. And I say it with great respect and tremendous gratitude for all that God has done for us as a country. But I think we've been cursed by our blessings. And I can say that with some perspective, because our family, when I was growing up, worked with persecuted Christians around the world. We met many of them, including Pastor Wombrand. There's just something different about them. They have nothing, but they actually have everything. But Elisha feels so strongly about this point. He, he wants so much to show kindness back to this woman for her generosity that he just has to try and think of some way to do that. And so Verse 14, he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly, she has no son, and her husband is old. And he said, call her. So she had walked away. He says, call her back. 
When he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and Elisha said, at this season, now just think about the boldness of him just making this statement on behalf of God. You got faith? I don't have faith at all when I read most of these stories. I'm embarrassed when I read them. He said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Not just a child. It wasn't a vague, yeah, somewhere down the road, God's going to bless you with a child. No. This season, this time next year, you'll embrace a son. Wow. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, don't lie to your maidservant. See, having no children in that culture, as we've looked at before, was considered by the the person who was barren a great embarrassment and shame and a source of terrible sadness, especially not having a son to carry on the family name. And this woman had no doubt longed for children. I, I have no doubt that she had prayed again and again and again that God would give her a child, but she lived year after year with that empty ache in her heart as she saw all the other mothers at the playground playing with their children, and she was alone. Her husband was old, and by this time she had probably just decided it was never going to happen. It's obvious how caught off guard she was by this statement when Elijah told her, Elisha told her she'd have a son. You can tell this is a very sensitive, very painful topic for her. It's not something she jokes about, and that's why she reacts by saying, in our language, don't mess with me, don't joke with me, don't you get my hopes up for nothing. She wasn't showing a lack of faith, because we're going to see in just a moment, she demonstrated extraordinary faith, but she'd gotten her hopes up so many times before. Oh, honey, I believe, I believe I might be pregnant. I'm so excited, I can't wait only to have her hopes dashed again and again and again. And the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We've all been there, haven't we? Surely in one thing or another. You hope and you hope and you hope, and you pray and you wait, and it doesn't happen. It just makes you sick. That's where she was. Well, when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Verse 17 Again, I love the directness of this. They don't beat around the bush. They don't need to tell you the whole story leading up to it. They just jump from what God told the prophet to say to verse 17. The woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, as Elisha had said to her. We could talk for an entire Sunday on those last two phrases there. Okay, Not only did the, the woman get pregnant and bear a son, but it happened at the appointed time. And it happened as God had spoken to her through the prophet. Remember I said to you, look in your Bible, especially the Old Testament, the phrase, so and so, such and such happened according to the word of the Lord. That's how everything happens. According to the word of the Lord. Nothing with him is random or haphazard. And so she, she gave birth to a son. Can you imagine the joy that flooded over her? Day after day, just looking at that little fella growing up and running and playing. How many times do you think she said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this incredible blessing that you've given me. Thank you for this miracle that you've given me. And as the boy began to grow, she she fell more and more in love with him. Her heart became more and more attached to him. So 
End of story, right? They lived happily ever after. I'm afraid not. As I already said, this life is filled with setbacks and battles and sorrows. And we're told that something happens. We don't know exactly how old the boy was, but he was still small enough to be carried by his mother. So we would assume possibly he was five or six or something like that. Verse 18, when the child had grown, again, it doesn't mean a grown man. It refers to him not being a weaning child anymore. He was old enough to you know, go to the kitchen and get a snack now if he wanted to. He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father after he'd been out there a while, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. Typical man. I, I don't know what to do. Take him, take him to his mom. Verse 20, and when he had taken him, brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. He'd been out in the fields with his father. What would make a boy happier? He'd been out there doing all the things that boys love to do, running around and throwing dirt clods and throwing rocks at birds in trees. I never did that ever, but I heard some kids would do things like that. Just the typical boy thing, breaking stuff, climbing up on things and jumping off, helping his dad drive the tractor. I don't know what he was doing, but he was out there having a good time, and all of a sudden he felt a severe pain in his head. Again, we don't know what brought this on, but the servant took him back home, and his mom did what mothers do so well. She took the boy in her lap. She cradled him. She hugged him. She rocked him. She spoke gently to him, probably got a cool cloth and kept putting it on his head. It wasn't long until she felt the life of her precious little boy go right out of him. And everything in her died in that moment. There she was holding God's promise in her arms, and God's promise was now gone. She, she shakes him. She calls his name over and over. There's no response. I imagine blackness must have just enveloped her mind her heart was in her throat. She, she felt dizzy. She felt sick all over. Surely she had to be thinking, why? Why? What do I do now? The promise from God, this miracle that he gave me is dead. Something I waited for my whole life. It was finally given to me, and now it's been taken away. And as she looked down at that sweet little face that she had kissed a thousand times, Those once rosy cheeks were now growing more and more ashen by the minute, and waves of grief must have swept over her. But something rose up inside of her as well at that moment. And she must have thought to herself, even in the midst of this grief, something said to her, it's not over. This is not the end. Verse 21, so she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door and went out. She didn't call her family and friends and tell them that her son was dead. She didn't get on Facebook and post it. She kept it to herself. Why? Her actions here are not the actions of a woman who's preparing for a funeral. Faith had come alive in her in that moment because as someone once said, faith prevails even when all else fails. Faith rose up in her Look what she did next, verse 22. She called to her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. 
So he said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And he's saying, well, first it's revealing something that she was in the practice of going to the place of worship when it was time. And he knew that. And he said, like, it's, it's Tuesday afternoon or whatever. What, what are you going there now for? Worship isn't on. It's not the right time to go. You see, she knew where to go when problems came. She didn't run to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. Again, nothing wrong with that. Just be careful. Be careful that those things don't replace our Bible, that those things don't replace our faith in God, that he's the first one we turn to. She knew where to go. Her husband was puzzled by this. She didn't tell him. She didn't tell him that the son was dead. Instead, she spoke these staggering words to her husband. She said, it shall be well. And you read that and go, oh, what now? It shall be well. It can also be interpreted, it is well. It's the word shalom. We know it. It means peace. It means calm. It means everything is fine. How in the world could she say that when the very son that she had wanted for so long, the hope that she had held onto was dead? But she refused to accept that her son was going to stay dead. Instead, she spoke these incredible words. Just after she had laid the body of her son on the bed upstairs, she could say, it shall be well. How? How's that possible? How is it possible that she could say with certainty that all will be well, even in the face of such tragedy? How could Horatio Spafford write the words, it is well with my soul when suffering such great loss? But more importantly, or perhaps more applicably, how can you and I say it shall be well when trials and heartache come our way? How can we know that all will be well, even when the world around us is falling apart, even when it seems that God's very promises have died? Well, first of all, we're able to say, it shall be well, because we have confidence in who God is. You understand, this kind of faith doesn't come from pumping ourselves up, saying, oh, I'm going to believe more. I'm, I'm really going to psych myself up through this trial, and I'm just going to be positive the whole way. No, that's nonsense. That's, that's the human approach to faith. We're able to say it shall be well in the face of of any trials that come our way, not because of anything in us, but because we have confidence in who God is. This woman's grief had to be indescribable, holding her dead son in her arms. Yet she was fully convinced that God's ways are perfect and that he does all things well. And folks, I would say to you until you and I can come to that place of certainty in God's prevailing wisdom and goodness will always be plagued with doubts about the purpose of the trials that come our way. If we doubt that God is good, if we doubt that he is kind, if we doubt that he is all wise, if we doubt that he is our loving father who would never hurt us, then doubts will begin to creep in when problems come. We'll lay in bed at night staring into the blackness and thinking, why would God do this? And anger 
will begin to rise up in us and will turn against the very one who loves us and cares for us more than anybody. Abraham could say with confidence, facing what would turn out to be one of the most painful moments of his life, he could say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And by the way, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is yes, he will. David concluded, good and upright is the Lord. He is righteous in all his ways and merciful in all his works. Isaiah declared in the midst of utter turmoil, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them. There's no other way that you and I can stand face to face with the problems and trials and setbacks and heartaches that come our way in life and be able to stand securely knowing that whatever happens to me in this life, whatever pain may come to me in this life, we can say with confidence, it shall be well, not because we're strong, but because we know who God is. And we know that the one who paid such a high price for us would never harm us, would never do us wrong. But also we're able to say it shall be well because of his relationship to us. See, it wouldn't just be enough for us to know who God is and to love him and respect him because there's a problem that every human being has, and that is that our sin has separated us from God for all eternity. The Bible says that we were lost and hopeless in our sin with no way, no way on our own of reconnecting our relationship with God. We were separated from him for all eternity. So it's not enough to know who God is. We have to be secure in the relationship that's been made available to us. God saw us in our sin. and He paid the ultimate price to pay for that sin, to forgive us the debt, to restore our relationship with him. And that all happened through the death of his son on the cross. And the beautiful part is to all who trust in him, he's granted eternal life and a promised home in heaven. Because of that, because of that, we have hope beyond this life. We have hope beyond the troubles and hurts and heartaches of this life. Can, can I just ask you, do you? Do you have hope that's anchored outside of this physical realm, outside of the things of this earth? I sat with a man years ago who, um, well, he was kind of boasting of all the money he and his wife had saved over the years, and boy, they had a huge retirement fund, and he just, uh, you know, he was set. He was set. And uh, I wanted so badly to, maybe I should have, you know, just said something to him. But I was thinking, buddy, that could be gone in the blink of an eye. And it wasn't just a few years later that I heard the horrible news that his wife had gone through cancer Operation after operation after operation. And one of the things he said to me at lunch that day was, we don't need insurance, you know, because we've, we're covered, we're good, we're healthy, we eat right. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Suddenly, that thing that he had hope in was gone. See, our hope must be anchored in something outside of this world. And that's only made possible in 
the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and us putting our trust in him. Because when that happens, God takes us from the kingdom of darkness and he adopts us as his children and he makes us heirs of everything that is his. And he's promised us through the seal of the Holy Spirit, he's guaranteed us that treasure in heaven, that home in heaven. And I don't know about you, but there are moments, there are days, there are times in this life when I have to pause and just think about that to get me through whatever I may be facing that I can't solve in my own cleverness. I can't buy my way out of. I have to go through it. I have to go through. And in the midst of that, though, I can look up and remember, man, I'm so glad my hope is not in my health. I'm so glad my hope is not in my relationships or my job or my money or this or that. My hope is in heaven where it's anchored securely. This woman, for whatever reason, she, God saw that she needed to pass through this trial so that she could be shaped into what God wanted her to become so that God would be glorified in it. And the remaining verses, which we don't have time to look at today, read on your own, they tell us the wonderful news that God actually raised her son from the dead. Because of all that she experienced, because of this terrible heartache and loss that she went through, her faith was strengthened. And the faith of everyone who knew her was strengthened. And our faith can be challenged and strengthened today some 3,000 years later. God is still using this I don't know all that you've been through or all that you may be going through right now. But I want to tell you, we can know that none of our trials are wasted. And I know that sounds like a corny, spiritual, churchy, cliche thing to say. I know you would expect a pastor to say that, but I'm telling you it's the truth. None of our trials are wasted. God is using all of them for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. You know, Romans 8.28, and this is a shame on me, I rarely quote this verse because it has almost been worn out and misused and applied at the wrong time so many times that it's, almost, it's just almost become meaningless in my ears. And I really fight for that not to happen. I heard one time a person say this to a widow at her husband's funeral. Well, all things work together for good. I went, wow, timing, bro, timing. But it's still true nonetheless. And we know, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Here's the part that's never read, the next verse. The purpose is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose of it all. All those trials, all those hardships, They're not random. They're not meaningless. They come to conform us to a different shape. And listen, folks, if you've ever been to a factory where they have these massive plastic mold presses and so on, you know that reshaping something takes pressure. It takes heat. It requires change. And the same is true in us. It's a process that will not come without pain for any of us. But all pain has a godly purpose. David said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. What? 
Oh, not in the moment he didn't really feel that, but he looked back, he said, oh yeah, it's good for me that God put me through that horrible thing. Why? That I might learn his statutes. He said, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Job said, I looked for God everywhere, the north, the south, the east, the west. I couldn't find him. It it just seemed like he wasn't anywhere. And then he said, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Folks, pain and heartache will surely visit us. They will surely visit us in this life. But are we living in the absolute certainty that no matter what may come, it shall be well. We need to remind ourselves regularly that all the trials and sorrows and heartaches that come in this life can never eclipse the glory that is to come. You understand? It can never outweigh the glory that is to come when we're with him forever, where all will truly be well. And on that day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, for there'll be no more death No more sorrow, no more crying. There'll be no more pain for the former things will pass away and all things will be made new. And until then, through it all, yes, even through the tears, even through the hurt, even through the loss, may we learn to say with confidence, it shall be well. May we learn to say with certainty and with joy and with passion, blessed be the name of the Lord. He is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. No matter what comes, can we say that? Can I just close by saying to you, be of good cheer, child of God. Be of good cheer. Whatever you're going through, say to your soul, because God said it, it shall be be well. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036 Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.